CEE Central Europe Explained An IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group Episode 5 European Union and Popular Myth Part 1 with Professor Thomas Dietz A warm welcome to this new episode of CEE, Central Europe Explained. My name is Sebastian Schäffer. I'm the Managing Director of the Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. And I'm very happy to welcome today Thomas Dietz, Professor of Political Science and International Relations at the University of Tübingen. Hello, Thomas. Good morning, Sebastian. Thank you very much for doing this with us. You are a long-standing cooperation partner of ours, and we already have done a seminar that sort of dealt with myth in the European Union back then in Chisinau, I think five years ago. And within the next two episodes, we are going to focus on popular myth about the European Union. And in today's episode, we will be looking closely at these myths. And then next week, we will be discussing together about their impacts in the Central and Southeastern European region. So Thomas, I would first like to start with the founding myth of Europe. From the Iliad, the myth of Europa gave their name to the continent. Indeed, she is today a figure of pan-European identity and her face is represented on some Euro coins and also some bills. Can you tell us more about the idea behind this myth and which role does it still play for the EU today? I actually don't think that, uh, that that the myth plays a particularly important role today. This is something that is uh, coming up here and there, often when Europe is in crisis. But if you think about founding myths of the uh, European integration process, there is a sort of, uh, I think, uh, gap between that antique myth and the myths we associate with uh, Europe today. Uh, Europe, of course, in this sense, is a precarious uh, kind of project that needs to be uh, rescued uh, from those that try to hijack it. But, you know, other than in crisis, I don't think you can sometimes see it in cartoons, in, in newspapers. But I, I don't think it's very present in the debates, the discourses about uh, integration to political debates today. So there's rather another myth, this bicycle myth, with the idea that the European Union must always be moving forward. But this seems to be also rather an elite discourse. I haven't seen cartoons, as you mentioned. Um, but nevertheless, how would you evaluate this idea regarding the current circumstances? Because the European integration doesn't seem to move that constantly forward, as this bicycle myth implies. So is the European Union falling off the bicycle? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think we need to distinguish between different types of myths. We're now talking um, about a myth that is more originally a metaphor. And through this the, the repetition of, of this metaphor, it perhaps has become a certain myth in the sense that it's, it is a story that, uh, that is repeated and becomes sort of has its own standing in the integration process that people refer to. I mean, this is different from these ancient mythologies where you tell sort of stories digging back deep into history with mythical creatures and so on. And I think we will encounter 
different types of myths as we go along. There are many other myths that, you know, where, where there is a, a question of making historical connections. There are myths that stem from these metaphors. And then there are myths that have their groundings in actual events. But then these events are being perpetuated and exaggerated. Uh, so, so, so I think that that's just important to, to recognize that we're talking about very different types of myths. Mm-hmm. And the bicycle metaphor is, has, of course, been used politically to argue that the European integration process is a process and it's not a kind of a status quo. And that therefore, in order to maintain that process, you need to continue to, to go along. So, so on the one level, uh, there, there is actually you know, some truth in this, that the European integration process is not something that is completed. And the question, of course, is whether it can ever be completed. Now, you can make that argument, of course, of all kinds of political processes. I mean, you can say, is democracy ever completed? Mm. Or is that not also a bicycle? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and uh, you know, or, or, or whatever, yeah? So, so, so uh, the world, the social world is always in flux. Uh, and therefore to think of something that is uh, standing like a bastion or a tower is perhaps uh, a misrepresentation of what's going on. Um, so, so you think about the bicycle, but the bicycle, of course, in, in this, this original idea is a bicycle that has another thing to it, and that is that it's moving forward, and therefore it has a certain ideology to it. Um, so it's moving towards a particular, uh, in a particular direction. And I think, that therefore, this metaphor has been used to, to legitimize uh, particular political positions and has uh, basically legitimized that we've got to move forward uh, in the European integration process and forward in this sense meant further supranationalization. Uh, so the transfer of competences from the member states to the supranational um, institutions on the European level. I haven't heard that bicycle metaphor in quite some time. Um, And the reason for this is, of course, that the integration process has taken very uh, diverse terms over the last, uh, say, 10, 20 years. So we've seen integration processes that uh, do not move into this particular direction. We've seen uh, developments where the idea that we're always moving forward has also been questioned. The debate is still there whether that automatically means that integration is going to collapse. Uh, And what I see is, of course, that uh, many of the opponents seem to uh, indirectly imply the bicycle myth, as you call it, um, because they seem to argue that once there is no progress anymore, the European Union automatically will fall apart. Uh, And, and, uh, you know, um, I don't think I agree with this. But on the other hand, I also don't agree, you know, that, uh, or I, therefore, I also don't agree that there is an inherent need to always move in one direction, as the bicycle myth perhaps has uh, implied. You mentioned um, also other myths and that they have other functions. And when we talk about the European integration process, we also find a lot of misunderstandings that become myths and are also used and maybe even misused and exploited. For instance, the bureaucratic maloch or the elite's discourse or the curved cucumber or then even the banana ban, uh, we could name even more, um, which is something that, of course, also influences 
how the citizens see the European Union and how they perceive the European Union. Um, some are more absurd than others, but could you maybe comment a little bit on this? What are they really about? Where do they come from? And um, how do they influence also the European integration process? Yeah. Um, th th these are now the types of myths that have their origin in, in uh, actual um, reality. Uh, so uh, in certain events, in certain procedures that are there, and, and then uh, they are exaggerated and, and, and perpetuated, and then perhaps uh, sort of they take on this mythical nature um, by, by constantly being um, repeated and fit back into the debate in particular ways. Now, um, one of the basic issues uh, here is that in all of the examples that uh, you have mentioned, we are dealing with aspects of uh, European integration that, however, are not inherent to European integration, but are the effect of the interests of particular representational groups within the European Union. So in other words, those kind of things are the, the normal um, um, effect of politics and you find them in all uh, other um, uh, polities as well. Um, if you go into any member state of the EU, you will find bureaucratic regulations uh, that are entirely absurd, uh, but the reason why they are there um, are not uh, because some um, politician in the morning wakes up and thinks, let's do something absurd. They are there because there are particular interest groups uh, that back those regulations uh, and they have particular power over the current political constellations, the governments, uh, and therefore they are in a position to push that through. Now take the, the cucumber. I mean, and, and, and what you mentioned, they have very diverse backgrounds, actually. Take the cucumber. Um, the cucumber um, regulation um, is uh, uh, interesting. First of all, it doesn't exist anymore, uh, but it did exist. Huh? So, so I think it's important that this is a typical myth uh, that has its founding because it existed. And it existed because there was a regulation that uh, uh, basically told suppliers um, uh, how curved those cucumbers that uh, can be sold as category one cucumbers. I mean, they, you could sell any kind of cucumber. The question was uh, how it was classified. And the classification was that it could only have a certain degree of curve. I don't know the details anymore either. Um, but why was it done? It was done because the supermarkets who have a particular power over uh, the market uh, in the European Union demanded that uh, the, the cucumbers were in such a shape so that they were relatively straight because you could, of course, easily apply pack them and sell them. And this was done under partly also under the under the mantle um, of consumer protection. Uh, and so, you know, this is a very typical and very interesting phenomenon that we have in the EU that because, of course, the heart of the EU is the single market. And so there are lots of then regulations over what is the characteristic, what are the, um, the quality thresholds for a particular uh, good to be able to be sold on that market. And so then there's a fight over, over various um, regulations that often are being legitimized with reference to consumer protection. And to be frank, I've become very skeptical of anything uh, that is mentioned in the name of consumer protection. 
uh, because I'm always wondering who is sort of benefiting from this. Um, and in the case of the cucumber, it was the supermarkets in particular that benefited from this. And it were particular kinds of big scale farming companies uh, that of course supplied those supermarkets. And so, you know, that is how this came about. And it was not only the EU, you find other such regulations uh, in, in other contexts. In fact, the EU only took over this regulation from an existing guidance by uh, a, a UN uh, agency. Yeah? So this is a typical kind of, so there is some truth in it, but then it sort of uh, takes on a life of its own. It, you know, the way that it's then talked about is no longer really kind of expect people to know these details, of course. Uh, so it's got little to do with uh, the details and people should, uh, and people forget about uh, the, the process behind. Let's talk about bananas very quickly. Bananas yeah. is slightly different, you know, bananas, uh, but the banana case is a, is a case that, that has to do with colonialism. So when the EU was, when then European communities were founded, of course, uh, the, those were former colonial powers. So they had specific trade relations with their colonies. And when the UK joined, um, these, these, these had to be renegotiated, uh, those linkages. Um, and the linkages have to, the trade linkages between former colonial powers and the former colonies are challenged because they normally have specific access to the market in the former colonial power, which then uh, is a problem if you do a single market because those special provisions for the former colonies uh, will have to be brought in line with the rules of the single market. Uh, and so this was done initially through the so-called Yaoundé Agreement, uh, and then and then later through the Lomé Agreement. And the Lomé Agreement was an agreement between the former colonial powers and uh, the the former colonies of those uh, EU colonial powers. And the Lomé Agreement was partly necessary because the UK coming in, uh, so the the number of former colonial powers expanding. And among those uh, former colonies of those powers, you had the Caribbean. Uh, where, of course, the UK held uh, a lot of uh, former uh, colonies. Uh, they were banana producing. Yeah? So you got them special uh, access to the market to protect their banana production. This, in turn, of course, is in uh, contradiction to uh, WTO rules. Um, uh, and so the Latin American producers were not able to sell their bananas uh, to the European market on the same conditions as the Caribbean producers, even though the Caribbean producers had to do this at a much higher price, etc. Uh, and so, you know, this, so it wasn't a ban. Of course, if you were a Latin American producer, you could sell. It's just you had to, uh, you had to sell the bananas uh, with, a, with a heavy duty imposed, so they were no longer uh, really uh, attractive to consumers. Again, like in the cucumber case, therefore, we see that there are very specific interests, this time not so much or only partly internal. So, of course, the former colonial powers had an interest in protecting their uh, former uh, colonial, um, the, the interests of their former colonies in, some, in terms of trade. But, but they were interests largely of outside actors. Uh, funnily enough, it was actually the United States which ultimately took the European Union to court over this, not the Latin Americans. But that's, a, that's another... Yeah. <laughs> that's another story you can see how complex yeah. these things are um and uh, you know so these these are myths that often have a true nucleus but uh, they are both banana 
and cucumber are actually gone. So there was a settlement uh, in 2009, I believe, uh, 2012, in front of the uh, WTO procedures. Uh, in the cucumber, as I said, the regulation no longer exists, but they continue to, to influence the thinking uh, of people. Uh, even they were there at the, uh, perhaps for, uh, for perhaps even the right reason. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, the, 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 the one last thing about the banana case is very interesting because you can see the different powers of the, the newly joining member states, because when Spain and Portugal, um, who had, of course, colonies in Latin America, uh, joined the EU, there was no uh, renegotiation on, on the front. That's, that's very interesting, uh, actually. Just on the bureaucracy, I've dealt with uh, the EU on doing EU projects. And I can tell you, it's a, it's a bureaucratic nightmare. And uh, one of the, so my work has largely been on EU and conflict resolution. And one thing that we have constantly criticized was the hurdles that say small civil society organizations have to overcome in order to get funding of the EU. So there is all this uh, sort of embracing of those civil society organizations as conflict transforming actors. And at the same time, those small civil society organizations need like a massive staff to deal with the regulations of the EU. So I'm the last one to say uh, that, that the EU is not in, in some ways a bureaucratic monster. Yeah? But you know, if we read a lot of sociologists starting from Max Weber and others, we know that all um, pol polities, modern polities, the modern state, uh, these are bureaucratic monsters. Uh, I'm currently dealing with a grant from the German Ministry um, for Research, and I can tell you that's a bureaucratic monster as well. Um, and so one problem, I think, that, uh, that there's actually two problems with that particular myth. The myth is absolutely true in, in, in some senses, but um, we seem to judge the EU on different grounds than we judge the nation state. So we, mm -hmm. ex we expect from the EU to operate differently from the nation state. Um, and, and this seems to, be, seems to me to be uh, problematic. Uh, mm -hmm. If we were to talk about the bureaucracy in the nation state and immediately then also ask the question, you know, is this legitimate? Uh, we would have even worse troubles uh, within yeah. uh, member states. And the second thing is that there as well, it is often uh, demands made by, um, uh, by citizens, by citizens groups that result in these bureaucratic uh, rules. Because for instance, the call for financial transparency means that of course, for every single cent that you spend, you need to, you need to complete 10 forms. Um, and of course, we all know then what this means, because you cannot control every single cent. Then you start to think about procedures of how to actually complete that form without being able to uh, control for every cent. Huh? And this, this is a typical example of how um, uh, those bureaucracies uh, evolve and how then people criticize the myth at the same time as they are responsible for perpetuating the myth. It's um, very interesting to see that, okay, there are certain truths to those myths that then sort of expand and become bigger than they actually are and spiral out of control. 
um, and hurt the European integration process. So we've seen you know, there is bureaucracy. We as an NGO, we also know that, but this is not genuine to the European Union. You mentioned it. We saw that there is um, a certain regulation that is the basis for it, but it might be long gone. Still, people talk about the curved cucumber when they criticize the European Union. So my final question for this episode would be, why do you think it is the case that we have certain truth to it, um, but then when we look closer to reality, it's probably too complicated to explain it to each and everyone, but it's always blown out of proportion on a European level. Why does that not happen on the nation state? Why is it that it's always the European Union? Is it because we expect the EU to be something else, as you mentioned, or might there also be other reasons for that? No, I think the main reason is that uh, we are accustomed uh, to the nation state. Mm. Uh, this is the, uh, the reference point that we grow up uh, in, that we are educated in, uh, that we take for granted. And human beings tend on the one hand to long for change and something new, but at the same time, they are very conservative. And so what exists, and especially if your own identity is tied up with that that exists, uh, takes on a different ontological standing from uh, other things that are, are new and that are therefore always questioned. You can see this, for instance, when... Uh, there are these charges that um, politics on the European level is so complicated. And I say, well, can you actually explain certain procedures in your national constitution to me? And that most people will not be able to do so. And that's completely unproblematic for them. But when it comes to the EU, it is a massive problem. So, 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 so there, is, there is a problem that the political sociologist and historian Benedict Anderson once called the imagination of the nation seems to work um, a lot better than the imagination of a European society and polity. And this is because the imagination of the nation has developed in a particular historical epoch in which centralization through new technologies was possible and desirable. Whereas nowadays, of course, we live in an age where decentralization is the trend of the day. Um, uh, the media diversifying in you know, all these different social media and so on, uh, channels. So we are not living under the same circumstances. And this means that sort of the head start that the nation state has had for the last 250 years is, you know, it doesn't make it a level playing field. And so um, it's very difficult to engage with many people and sort of explain things that people wouldn't even ask in the context of the nation state. Uh, that, I think, is the main difference. And that, of course, opens it up to all sorts of myths, because, of course, in a sense, for many, the European Union itself is a kind of myth uh, that, they, that they don't, that, that has this mythical sort of, uh, whereas, you know, the nature, whereas the nation state, even though it's also a myth, 
um, is not, um, because that's what they learned at school, etc. That is there, um, and I think that is a that is a that is a that is a, a, a big problem. Um, and attempts. This is the this is a, you know like in the case where um, the bureaucracy is being uh, reproduced by the demands of the citizens. The same, of course, happens uh, on the on, on on the complexity of of, of uh, European decision making because. Once you try to simplify that, it automatically, of course, if you want to simplify that, it automatically comes with further constraints to the sovereignty of the individual member states. So, so you simplify by introducing certain qualified majority voting. And then of course people say, oh, we don't want that. So all of a sudden they prefer the complexity. So those myths also work um, in a way that you, know, you can sort of um, uh, do a scapegoating. You can move all the problems and bad things onto the EU, um, whereas the, the nation state is sort of uh, whitewashed from, from all of this. Okay. That's clearly an exaggeration, I should say. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, we can continue to discuss this perhaps at another point. Yeah. Thank you very much, Thomas. I think um, we're going to continue next week when we uh, speak a little bit more about the region. But for now, um, we have a perfect basis for the next episode and um, how these popular myths that we have been discussing also impact the Central and Southeastern European region. Thank you very much to everyone for listening. This was CEE Central Europe Explained, an IDM podcast series powered by Erste Group. Hear you next week for the second part of this episode. Thank you very much, Thomas. Bye-bye. Thank you, Sebastian. IDM Podcast. Institut für den Donauraum und Mitteleuropa. Institute for the Danube Region and Central Europe. European Perspectives. Regional Actions. Cooperation and Expertise since 1953.